Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. It took nearly a month to get it, but we finally have it. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled on presidential immunity. Donald Trump's last best attempt to evade a criminal trial for his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. It is unanimous ruling written by all three federal appeals court judges overseeing this case two Biden appointees and one appointee of President George H.W. Bush. And those judges spell it out in no uncertain terms. Donald Trump's claim that a former president cannot be criminally prosecuted is worthless. Quoting from the ruling, it would be a striking paradox if the president, who alone is vested with the constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, were the sole officer capable of defying those laws with impunity. We cannot accept former President Trump's claim that a president has unbounded authority to commit crimes that would neutralize the most fundamental check on executive power, the recognition and implementation of election results. Nor can we sanction his apparent contention that the executive has carte blanche to violate the rights of individual citizens to vote and to have their votes count. At bottom, former President Trump's stance would collapse our system of separated powers by placing the president beyond the reach of all three branches of government. Now, no one ever really thought that the appeals court was going to agree with Donald Trump's arguments in this case, except for maybe Donald Trump. It will be bedlam in the country. It's a very bad thing. It's a very bad precedent. As we said, it's the opening of a Pandora's box. And it's a very it's a very sad thing that's happened with this whole situation. Uh, when they talk about uh, threat to democracy, that's your real threat to democracy. And I feel that as a president, you have to have immunity. Very simple. The real question ahead of this ruling was how much of an opportunity would the judges give Donald Trump to delay his trial? And that is the part of this ruling that Trump's lawyers cannot be happy about. The judges effectively neutralized Trump's ability to further delay this case by requesting another lower-level court appeal, where traditionally he would have another 45 days to delay this case. That is not happening. And the court only gave Trump until Monday to appeal this ruling directly to the Supreme Court. So this issue is now on a bullet train and headed directly for the highest court in the country. And the new question on everyone's minds, what will the Supreme Court do? The justices effectively have three options. They can choose not to hear Trump's appeal and let the lower court's decision stand. That's the decision we got today. They could choose to hear the appeal quickly, as have previous Supreme Courts for important matters involving presidents and elections. Or they could choose to hear Trump's appeal effectively at the court's leisure, a decision that would push Trump's criminal trial even further into the future. Now, we don't know, of course, which of those opinions the justices will choose, or for that matter, how they will rule if they do decide to hear this appeal. 
But it's worth pointing out that this conservative Supreme Court, despite its reputation, which, you know, is earned. This Supreme Court, though, is not always in lockstep with Donald Trump. When it comes to investigations into Trump, this court has often ruled against him. They rejected Trump's appeals to block the certification of the 2020 election. They refused to block the release of Trump's financial records to Congress. They refused to stop the January 6th committee from getting Trump's White House records. And they refused to intervene on Trump's behalf in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. So what do they do now that the future of one of Donald Trump's federal criminal trials is literally in their hands? And how long will it take them to do whatever they're going to do? Well, all over the Supreme Court building, if you've been there, you know this. Maybe if you've been there, you don't know this. There are tortoises etched into the stonework. You can see them right there. They are allegories for the slow and steady pace of justice. And now the Supreme Court has to decide if those tortoises will become emblematic of the way the nation's highest court allowed a former president to run out the clock or not. Joining me now is Mary McCord, former senior Justice Department official and the co-host of the Essential and Indispensable Prosecuting Donald Trump podcast. Mary, thank you so much for joining me. I, I want to paraphrase the great Dahlia Lithwick, who wrote that um, this ruling from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is a bench slap. Do you agree with that assessment? And how does a sort of ruling in the, in, in, in the slap category figure into the way the Supreme Court might look at this case? Well, you know, if by bench slapper she means it is chock full of quotes like those that you read at the top of the hour, and I could read you a dozen more if we had more time, um, it is really just filled with um, well-stated, pithy, conclusions of law rejecting Donald Trump's arguments. And that's uh, his arguments that separation of powers requires the president to have immunity for official acts. The court rejects that. It's a, it rejected his argument that policy reasons, a concern about chilling. And this is something that the former president likes to say every time he speaks, that a president can't possibly function as a president. He would be chilled from doing what he needs to do. Even he likened himself to uh, Truman, that Truman would have been chilled in making a decision to end World War II with the atomic bomb, that he would have been too chilled to do that if he didn't have immunity. They rejected those arguments and they rejected handily the argument that he can only be prosecuted criminally if he were first impeached and convicted uh, by the U.S. Senate, which, of course, they rejected. So for each one of these arguments, they they it, it is a bench slapper. It is just filled with, you know, um, very, in my opinion, persuasive legal conclusions rejecting those arguments. It's also something that because, as you indicated at the top of the hour, it was a unanimous per curiam decision, meaning no one judge's name is on it with the other judges joining. They all agreed to everything in that decision. It is something that shows unity. Um, and remember, this is a uh, a panel that had judges appointed by both Republican Republican 
Republican presidents and Democrat presidents. Um, and it actually does give the Supreme Court the opportunity, if they so choose, to decide they aren't going to stay the mandate. They aren't going to accept cert. If five of those judges uh, don't want to stay the mandate, the mandate will not be stayed. Now, it only takes four to grant cert. But that's why I think this decision on whether they will grant a stay is an important one, because if they if they don't grant that stay, that means there's, you know, there's five there that that uh, agreed they didn't want to grant that stay. And they could if they wanted to, they could say we're staying out of this because this decision is right. It's unanimous. And time really is of the essence. Now, I don't know that I'm gambling on that, but it certainly is an option available to them. Yeah. And let's let's just slow it down <laughs> before we get to the end of the of the story here, because we have the great Dahlia Lithwick. I, I quoted her and she arrived, uh, senior editor at Slate covering the courts. Um, Dahlia, you know, we were saying how you called this ruling a bench slap and um, the way in which Mary points out, it's just, you know, it's a unanimous decision. It took a long time coming. But man, it's a doozy. Um, and you point out today that, you know, in some sense, the Supreme Court shouldn't even take this up because it's so plainly obvious what the law says. Do you think the court will take it up anyway? You know, that's the question. I, I agree completely with you and Mary. This is an easy, easy case. There is no set of facts under which the court is going to grant this and future presidents blanket immunity from criminal prosecution for starting insurrections or other uh, uh, felony. I mean, this is it's such a crazy notion that he could win. And the standard should be right that the court has to have some reasonable belief that he could prevail. And so the easy answer is, if you look at the merits, this is not hard. The court should bat it away. I think the question you're asking under the question you're asking is, can the United States Supreme Court, the imperial court, that it's, has inserted its nose into every part of our lives, whether it's what is clean water, what is clean air, President Biden's loan forgiveness. There's nothing this court doesn't want to have the last word on. And so can it stand humbly back and say, you know, we think the, the D.C. Circuit panel got it right and we're going to let this go back to Judge Chutkin and go to trial. And that's a harder question for this court to show humility at this stage of the game. It's hard to believe that's coming. Yeah, I saw where you were going with that once you 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 sort of refreshed everyone's memories about the degree to which this court sticks its nose in other agencies' business. Um, uh, Mary, you talked about the various scenarios here, and I think a lot of this, especially when we start batting around terms like cert, et cetera, we, we it's confusing, right? So just to unpack it a little bit. There's the whether they decide to take it up and then the issue of the stay. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of the scenarios there? A stay basically means the case with Judge Chutkin remains frozen and nothing can happen, right? That's right. So right now, that case is remaining frozen until Monday. And what the D.C. Circuit panel said is that if Donald Trump files by Monday a motion in the U.S. Supreme Court seeking a continuation of the stay of the trial court, that's Judge Chutkin's uh, trial court calendar, um, uh, pending a filing a petition for cert, if they do that, then the stay would remain in place 
of course, until the, the Supreme Court actually takes action by either accepting the case for certiorari, meaning just accepting it for its own review, or denying uh, certiorari, meaning so it's denied, it all goes back to Judge Chutkin. So that's why so much rides on this idea of a stay. Now, I will note that back in one of the cases that you mentioned in your leadoff, Trump v. Thompson, this was the case where Mr. Trump sued to prevent the archives, archivist from providing presidential records, White House records, to the House Select Committee to investigate January 6th. After Mr. Trump's argument was rejected in the district court, rejected by the D.C. Circuit, again, in a, in a unanimous opinion, um, it was Mr. Trump then sought a stay of that ruling in the Supreme Court and cert, and the court denied that stay, denied cert, and the documents that had been requested by the House Subcommittee started going to, to them immediately. So that is a case that was also involved issues of sort of executive privilege, which is very comparable to executive immunity. And it was something that the court had never squarely decided on the same type of facts. And they were content to be, I think you use the word humble, and stand back and let that DC Circuit panel decision stand. Again, this is a different case, but they, there is precedent for this. And as much as the court, this court has taken up cases across all the issues and more that Dahlia mentioned, I don't know that they are that anxious to get into something um, like this in an election year and be the ones responsible for the outcome here, which will have an effect on the presidential election. Dahlia, I mean, what is your sort of read on this, given your wealth of knowledge about the Roberts court and the, the sort of national importance and the, the really abbreviated timeline on, on which things need to happen in order for the American voters to understand whether one of the presidential nominees is a convicted felon or not? I mean, there's one other piece to the puzzle, and that is in less than 48 hours, the court will be hearing another issue about whether he can be removed from the ballot in the state of Colorado and other states, presumably, if the court were to say yes. And so this is only the first of two cases this week in which the court is being asked to intervene in the 2024 presidential election. And I actually agree completely with Mary that you are looking at a court that has, we say this so often when you and I talk, the lowest public approval ratings since Gallup started polling, a complete lack of public confidence in the integrity of the justices and their ability to adhere to ethics. We had a massive unprecedented leak in the Dobbs case that wasn't investigated. So I actually think Mary's onto something when she says, does the court really want to be the decider in case after case after case after case? Because there will be more cases. We know Donald Trump is going to appeal anything he can up to the court. So I suspect we'll hear more of these. And I kind of agree that if the court wants to look as though it is indeed above partisan politics, Putting a thumb on the scale or taking a thumb off the scale for the president when the D.C. Circuit got it right? What's the point? I think it is exactly correct to say they're already in it up to their eyeballs in this Colorado case, and that's going to be a pretty hairy case for them to decide. Why take a bite at this one when Donald Trump cannot plausibly win it? Just really quickly, Dahlia, if they don't decide to take it up, that effectively means... It's, it goes back to Chutkin and 
things move forward. Is that right? Things move forward. She's already scrapped the March of 4th trial date um, because this took a long time. But it could very, very realistically uh, begin in the spring and be decided by the summer if the court just kicks it back and says, Judge Chutkin, on your market set, go. Wow. Okay. well... We're waiting. That's all I got to say. Dahlia Lithwick and Mary McCord, thank you both so much for your time tonight. Really appreciate it. We got some big breaking news coming up, and all of it has to do with a chaotic and utterly dysfunctional Republican Party. Congressman Jamie Raskin joins me just ahead. Stay with us. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console console. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Tonight, the Republican spectacle, the performance art, the attempt to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Tonight, that partisan undertaking failed in a theatrically embarrassing loss on the floor of the House. Now, I should underscore the fact that Secretary Mayorkas didn't actually do anything impeachment worthy here. Certainly nothing criminal, but that was all kind of the point. By targeting Secretary Mayorkas, Republicans could look like they were being tough on the border without actually needing to do anything about the border at all. Just impeach Secretary Mayorkas and call it a day. But now that effort, that theater, has failed. And that is not good news for the Republican Party, because when it comes to actual work on the border, the Republican Party is eating itself alive right now. I'm extremely disappointed in the very strange maneuvering by many on the right to to, to torpedo uh, a potential border reform bill. Well, it's a crappy bill. I mean, it's terrible. The thing is terrible. The Senate's deal is trash. My views on this bill have not been ambiguous. At the last press conference we had here, I described it as, quote, a steaming pile of crap. You got to read the bill. I mean, don't be ignorant. Read the bill. The bill that Republicans are at odds over is a $118 billion immigration bill that was unveiled last week. But here's the thing about that bill. It was bipartisan, and it gave Republicans a whole bunch of what they claimed they wanted without having to give in on much of anything. Republicans all stood up and said that they wanted a bipartisan bill to fix the border. The border is a priority. The border is a crisis. We delivered 
a bipartisan bill to fix the border with the Republican senator appointed by the Republican caucus to cut the deal. And within 24 hours before the ink was even dry, Republican senators decided they don't want a bipartisan bill to fix the border. That was Democratic Senator Chris Murphy, and he was the Democrat leading negotiations on this bill. But again, this was a bipartisan effort. The Republican senator and border hawk, I might add, who negotiated on behalf of Republicans was Senator James Lankford. Lankford is a co-author of this bill, and he is now actually under the bus, having been thrown there by his own party. Yesterday, former President Trump falsely claimed that he never endorsed Senator Langford and proceeded to bash the senator, as Trump does. But Trump did actually, in fact, endorse Senator Langford just two years ago. Donald Trump gave James Langford his complete and total endorsement and said that James Langford was, quote, strong on the border. So thanks for your service, James Langford. Anyway, this is an incredibly conservative bill. If Republicans were actually focused on the policy here, they would support it. Republicans say they want a quote-unquote secure border, but they do not. Not really. What they actually want is chaos. Because that's what Donald Trump says he wants. Joe Biden's approval rating's at 33%. Why would we do anything to try to help improve that dismal number with a border bill? Maybe they think that securing the border would help Biden politically? Which, of course, it would. But I want to secure the border. That's what I told my voters I would do. The truth is, the Republican Party has ceased to be a party of principles or even much of a party, really. The GOP's sole reason to exist in this moment appears to be the re-election of Donald Trump. And if you needed further proof of that, late tonight we got the news from The New York Times that the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee plans to step down. The Times reports that Ronna McDaniel Romney, Ronna McDaniel, plans to step down shortly after the South Carolina primary on February 24th and that her exit comes after months of pressure and a campaign from Trump allied forces to unseat her. The Times reports that Trump is likely to back an election denier, a man named Michael Watley, to take her place. We are going to talk about the state of the Republican Party and Donald Trump and today's very big court ruling against him with Congressman Jamie Raskin right after the break. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. Three judges from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals were united in their ruling against Donald Trump's claims of presidential immunity for trying to overturn the 2020 election. And the money quote from that ruling is arguably this one. For the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant. But any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him 
against this prosecution. Joining me now is Maryland Congressman, constitutional law expert and former member, of course, of the January 6th committee, Congressman Jamie Raskin. Congressman, it's so great to have you on this program. First, just let me get your thoughts on the ruling that was handed down uh, by the Circuit Court of Appeals in D.C. Well, a real public servant like Abraham Lincoln or Barack Obama or Thomas Jefferson would love the Appalachian um, Citizen Obama or Citizen Lincoln because um, a real constitutional patriot understands that those of us who aspire and attain to public office are nothing but the servants of the people. And the moment that we think we're lords or kings or queens or despots over everybody else, that's the moment immediately to eject, evict, reject, impeach, convict, start all over again. Uh, but of course, the court was absolutely right. Uh, that decision is one of the finest decisions I've read in a really long time. And it's an excellent primer into how our Constitution works, how nobody is above the law, uh, much less the president of the United States, whose principal responsibility is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. So they really put not just Donald Trump, but the presidency and the president back in proper constitutional perspective and said, you know, the president has no more right to violate the law than a member of Congress, a judge, a juror, or anybody else who's serving a public function. But in democracy, we occupy these roles temporarily, and none of us can allow our imaginations to run away with ourselves the way that Donald Trump and his lawyers apparently have lost complete contact with reality. Yeah, what what stunned what what stunned me was the the the, the just the incredibly tidy uh, tidy way they slapped down two of Trump's sort of biggest I guess you could call them defenses or arguments in this. The first was that you know allowing a president to be criminally prosecuted in post presidency would open a Pandora's box, and that somehow all presidents forevermore would be subject to criminal prosecution. The court. <laughs> that it would have a chilling effect on the presidency itself. And the appeals court writes, we conclude that the interest in criminal accountability held both by the public and the executive branch outweighs the potential risks of chilling presidential action and permitting vexatious litigation. And they go on to say that actually maybe it's a good thing. Instead of inhibiting the president's lawful discretionary action, the prospect of federal criminal liability might serve as a structural benefit to deter possible abuses of power and criminal behavior, basically upending the defense that this would be a bad thing and suggesting, hey, maybe presidents not criming is a good thing. Well, they they really castigate Trump and his lawyers even for raising that argument, both both on the basis of facts and on the basis of law. On the basis of facts, they say, gee, you're the only one who seems to be predicting some kind of Pandora's box parade of horribles, because up until Donald Trump, no president in American history had ever been indicted after leaving office. And I think that everybody, whether you're the biggest Trump supporter in the world or you think that, uh, you know, he foretells uh, an authoritarian future for America, nobody uh, would disagree that he's completely unique and sui generis in terms of his spectacular disrespect for the rule of law. But beyond the facts, they make the totally correct point that there are structural barriers to anybody in the government running away with the idea of there being a monarch or a dictator. That's why we have impeachment 
and conviction as a barrier to anybody in federal office who it applies to engaging in high crimes and misdemeanors. That's why we have the Supreme Court in judicial review of actions. That's why Harry Truman's steel seizure in 1952 was struck down. That was not selfishly motivated the way most of Donald Trump's crimes are. But he thought that he could go ahead and steal, um, seize the steel plants for the war effort. And the Supreme Court said, no, that's within the legislative province and you could enforce a law attempting to do that, but you don't have the right to uh, make the law and then go out and enforce it. Everybody's got to stay within their constitutional lane. The, you know, they, they also take apart Trump's sort of argument that he needed to be impeached before convicted, which is against what his lawyers were actually saying in court. And the, <laughs> the judges go on to quote Trump's lawyers back to him in taking apart that argument. But to, to the point you were just making about everybody staying in their own lane, I think the sort of strongest language they reserve um, is the is the the part of the ruling where they talk about the structural assault on the three branches of government. And then effectively, if Trump's alleged efforts to remain in power, despite losing the 2020 election, um, they they that they were effectively if if the, those are proven that he was indeed trying to remain in power despite losing the election, that would represent an unprecedented assault on the structure of American government. Um that's the part, I think, as someone who was so involved in the House January 6th committee, that's sort of the essence of all of this, isn't it? Just someone trying to to run roughshod over uh, the ability of our government to keep tabs on wrongdoing in other branches. Yeah, there's a there's a beautiful moment at the end of the opinion when the three judges, uh, two Democratic appointees, one Republican appointee, unanimously say that essentially were we to buy Donald Trump's arguments no branch of government could contain and control a president who wants to become an autocratic dictator. The legislature would not be able to pass any laws that could control him because he couldn't be prosecuted for anything unless first impeached or convicted. The executive branch in the form of the Department of Justice and prosecutors couldn't control him because he's got absolute immunity, according to Trump. And the court couldn't uh, do anything to control him because Trump asserts that that would be a violation of the separation of powers. So it's a three card Monty. No, no matter what you turn, nobody can ever hold Donald Trump accountable. And so this completely perverse and absurd constitutional argument that cuts against two centuries of our history really flows out of the warped psychology of this man who probably began as a boy who got his way at every possible turn, like uh, Little Richie Rich, the comic book I used to uh, read sometimes <laughs> when I was a kid uh, with the Archies. You know, you could never tell Richie Rich he couldn't do anything uh, that he didn't want to do. Um, and, um, you know, in the end, though, he was always upended. And I hope in the end, um, the constitutional patriots in America will stand Donald Trump down. And I got to tell you, today was a great day from that perspective, because you could read that opinion and you could remember what America was like, what real judges are like and what American jurisprudence really stands for. Yeah, well, it was a good day for, I, I think, jurisprudence. Not a great day. I have to ask you, because... <laughs> We, you're a member of the House of Representatives, and there was just a spectacular piece of Republican theater that that failed miserably on live television. That was the attempted impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas. Do you have a thought on that? Um, they're going to take another pass at it again in the coming days, I believe. Yeah. 
Well, the Mayorkas impeachment was like the trinket consolation prize for the mega right, which is not going to be able to bring the Biden impeachment to the floor. That really uh, has been an extraordinary flop uh, in our committee, in the oversight committee, as every which way they've turned, um, the witnesses have rejected what they're saying about Joe Biden. They just haven't laid a glove on Joe Biden. And uh, there's no high crime or misdemeanor. There's no uh, treason or bribery. So they said, well, let's go ahead and impeach Mayorkas. That's the bone that we'll throw to uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates in the crowd. But Three Republicans defected today. And uh, as you know, they have uh, the tiniest of margins uh, with Speaker McCarthy having uh, joyfully skipped town and then the uh, expulsion of George Santos. So they got this tiny margin and they were abandoned by Ken Buck. They were abandoned by McClintock. And then a Gallagher surprised them. They thought they still had one vote. But um, my wonderful colleague, Al Green, who was sick, made it to the floor. Um, I don't know exactly what happened. I haven't talked to Al. Some members were saying that, you know, he forced himself to get up and to be able to go. Others thought that it was a, a strategic maneuver uh, by Al Green created in advance. I don't know. The historians will have to figure that one out. But in any event, um, Mike Johnson ended up with egg all over his face. I mean, you could literally see him uh blushing and then furious and enraged the way the Republicans were. They held the vote open for a long time to try to change somebody's mind. And none of that worked. So like everything else they're doing, um, it's all boomeranging because they don't have a plan for America. And the things that they used to talk about, like abortion, they can't talk about anymore because the public has completely yeah. repudiated them. So now they're they're down to Im to immigration and they won't take yes for an answer because Donald Trump wants to uh, run on immigration as a problem, not as a solution. And of course, Vladimir Putin is in the background pulling the strings to make sure uh, that the Republicans don't go along with aid to the heroic people of Ukraine resisting his aggression. Congressman Jamie Raskin, such a pleasure to have you on the program tonight. Thank you for your time, sir. Coming up, Thank President you. Biden's top migration advisor in the National Security Council joins me. She just left the White House last week, and she's going to be here to discuss, what, what, discuss what's going on at the border and all the Republican non-efforts to avoid fixing it at all costs. That's too many double negatives, and it's coming up next. Just hours ago, House Republicans held a vote to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and failed. Along with that utterly unserious political theater, Republicans in Congress have been doing all they can to kill the bipartisan immigration neg bill negotiated by the Senate and the White House, a bill that is filled with things that Repul Republicans themselves have been demanding. Joining me now is Katie Tobin, President Biden's former top migration advisor at the National Security Council and former senior director for transborder security, who just left the White House last week. Katie, um, congratulations, I think, on leaving. Um, I think so. Let's just first talk about what's happening here, right? The border has become this um, political third rail in a way um, and also politically expeditious for certain Republicans. What does it mean practically if you're trying to deal with the thorny issue of migration to have like an impeachment proceeding underway for the Department of Homeland Security and, you know, House Republicans especially doing everything they can to scuttle a deal that was negotiated by Senate Republicans. 
Yeah, it's been quite a day. And thank you, Alex, for having me on. <laughs> of course. Uh, just to say at the top, um, I've had the chance to work with Secretary Mayorkas quite a bit over the last three years, and he's just such a man of integrity. Um, I think an inspiration to so many that have worked for him. His parents were refugees from Cuba. And, yeah. you know, what he has done to rebuild morale in the department and to usher in, you know, just um, historic legal pathways to the United States, along with um, important enforcement measures with really no support from Congress. Um, today was vindicating, but um, really was a waste of time. I mean, the, yeah. the, they should not be targeting him this way. So, um, and then, you know, I, I think the president said it well today when he when he spoke and really addressed the American people that this is this is serious. We need border reform. We have for a long time. He's been calling for it since day one of the administration. Um, I think today really illuminated the games that are being played on this issue. And um, in the seat that I was in, in the National Security Council, I was really focused on the foreign policy aspects of this. So working with our partners in Latin America. And this is an issue. Um, the migration is it impacting all countries. And yeah. It's at a level um, that we've never seen before. And so, um, you know, we are in negotiations with our foreign partners, too. And, and we don't always see eye to eye and everything, but um, we've been able to come to the table um, and find common ground because this, this issue is that important. It's existential. So it would be we want to see that um, in Congress, too. Yeah, well, I mean... I think for a lot of people, the the president has sort of gone all in on this in a way that is surprising and perhaps distressing to some Democrats in particular. His rhetoric around the border has has shifted rightward. I mean, just saying I'm going to shut the border down feels like a, a, a page out of, for lack of a better phrase, a Trump playbook. And then you couple that with some of the statistics here. Uh, the Biden DHS removed a higher percentage of border crossings, crossers, sorry, in its first two years than Donald Trump did over his last two years. Under Trump, migrants were also more likely to be released after border arrest. Can you help put into perspective sort of how how hawkish, if you will, this administration is, how hardline this administration is compared not just to Trump, but to other Democrats? I mean, having worked for the president yeah. um, and since day one, I, I, I actually don't think that there's been a shift. I think the president has been consistent all along. His his view is very much that we need order at the border, um, that we that our system is broken, that we we need legislative reform. Um, the last time we had major border reform was in 1996, yeah. and and the situation then is so different than the situation today, other than the fact that during both periods we've actually had a really strong economy. Um, but we can talk about that more. But I. You know, he al he also really believes that we need to be a country that's welcoming and that, mm -hmm. you know, we're founded or we're a country of immigrants. We have to be welcoming, but we can do that in an orderly way. So a lot of the work that we've been doing over the last three years is to increase consequences at the border um, with the laws that we have, um, with the limited resources, and then to expand orderly, safe legal pathways for people to come. So they arrive on planes with a work permit and a visa versus, you know, crossing through the Darien Gap and crossing the yeah. Rio Grande. So um, I think if you look back at, at what we proposed on day one and then what we've been working to achieve, um, it's really, it's very, it's, it's consistent. So um, it's unfortunate to see the, the politics around this. And, um, you know, I think we, you've seen the president on other issues be very willing to make compromises. Yeah very willing to make compromises. And we um, and he is on this issue, too. And he said that very clearly today. What does 
at one point, especially Vice President Harris was dispatched to to get to the root of this problem, which is yeah. the countries that were in some ways failing their citizens and, and causing them to migrate north. That the, the administration seems to have moved away from that entirely. And it's really just dealing with the border uh, issue itself. What happened there? Well, so that that work is is continuing and we're actually making some real strides on that. I think the 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 the, ma- the magnifying glass is on the border right now, but I actually think it needs to be more on the root causes and the work we're doing in the region. So I've actually traveled with the vice president's national security advisor twice in the last few months. We were just in Guatemala together. Yeah. The vice president has done incredible work at bringing the private sector to Central America. One important thing that just recently happened is we had um, a, a, an election and an inauguration of a new president in Guatemala, an anti-corruption candidate. That's critical because we need... Um, with um without um really going to those root causes of corruption and you know d- democratic backsliding it's actually really hard to get the private sector to invest and other donors yeah. to invest so we see a real turning point um for Guatemala um but the, the work of of root causes is something the president cares about a lot he he held the mantle on that during the, the Obama administration vice president Harris has taken that on um and then the other work that we've done that's a companion to that um is to strengthen our um our, our cooperation with re- countries across the region to manage the, the migration flow. Um, and so President Biden, in, in June of 2022, launched the Los Angeles Declaration. We had 22 countries yeah. across the Western Hemisphere sign this. So we need a common approach. We need to be working together. Um, you know. And so I think there's, the work that we're doing in the region is critical. Um, but unfortunately, I think the focus often is just on the border. Yeah. Certainly, yeah, a lot needing to be done and not a lot getting done, at least in Congress. Katie Tobin, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. We have one more story coming up, and it is this. Did a key defense witness in Trump's civil fraud trial lie under oath? The answer to that question could prove very, very expensive for Donald Trump. We'll have more on that right after the break. When the New York Times broke the news last week that Donald Trump's former CFO, Alan Weisselberg, was negotiating with the Manhattan DA's office to plead guilty to perjury in Trump's civil fraud case, well, it raised questions about whether this might be causing Judge Arthur and Goron, the judge presiding over that case, to delay his final ruling as to whether Donald Trump will potentially shell out $370 million or more for committing fraud. Today, we kind of got an answer. In an email sent on Monday, Judge Ngoron wrote to Trump's lawyers about the Times reporting and suggested this plea deal might change the timing of Judge Ngoron's decision. Okay, so why is Rebecca Royby, sorry, just going right to a former assistant DA in the Manhattan DA's office. Rebecca, I'm already, I'm already ahead on our questioning. Why is, why is Judge Ngoron asking Trump's lawyers to respond to this, this Weisselberg potential plea? Well, because they are in a position to have to know whether or not, in fact, it's true that he lied on the stand. And if he lied on the stand, this obviously has a huge impact on the judge's evaluation of the testimony and the case itself. And even though the alleged perjury may be about some small part of that testimony, the judge says, you know, maybe I have to discount all of his testimony because somebody who lies about one thing could lie about Everything. Everything, exactly. And Weisselberg is a key defense witness in Angoran's trial, isn't he? Is he not? 
Yes. I mean, he is an important witness and he, you know, testified as to a lot of the alleged uh, valuations that were supposedly exaggerated in order to get a benefit in these um, in these loans. Is this the kind of thing that would potentially move Judge Angoran to increase the sort of fine, if you will. We know he's looking at 300 and maybe $370 million fine here in this civil fraud trial. Right. I mean, it's complicated because that fine is going to be based a lot on these expert you know, assessments of how much damage was done. But I think, yes, in terms of his ultimate finding of the extent to which this has this fraud occurred. And if he finds that this was massive, then the of course, the fine can be massive. The other piece of this that's interesting is the way all these cases are sort of collapsing in on each other a little bit. Can you talk about that that unusual dynamic? Right. It's very interesting. First of all, I mean, you know, we know that there's this ongoing case in Manhattan, a criminal case that's unrelated about the hush money payments. And so Alvin Bragg has that on his mind, even if Weisselberg is not going to be an important character witness in that case. um, That case is pending. And he wants to send a message that witnesses who lie have consequences. I mean, all prosecutors want to do that, especially in high-profile cases, and especially even more when there are even more high-profile cases that are pending. So there's that. There's also the fact that he was himself looking at these same facts that constitute the facts that made up the civil case and deciding whether to charge that criminally. I assume that he has decide, moved on and decided not to, but that's always a possibility as well. So these cases are all going on, and there are so many of them. Sometimes you can forget about one when you focus on another. But <laughs> Well, and let's just say Donald Trump showed up to the courtroom for the Angoron case because yes. it involves his pocketbook. Right. And that means it matters to him. Right. Rebecca Royfe, see, you, did, you didn't even need an introduction. <laughs> such a, such a, a, a well-versed uh, expert in all of this. I'm so appreciative of Thank your time. You, Thank Alex. you, Rebecca. Before we go, we have a quick note about tomorrow's program. You will not want to miss my exclusive sit-down with former presidential candidate and former secretary of state and former first lady Hillary Clinton. There's quite a bit to talk about. That's tomorrow at 9 a.m. 9, 9 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Eastern, if you live on the other side of the planet. That does it for us. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free all lowercase shopify.com slash podcast free shopify.com slash podcast free